Hello everyone, welcome to this episode of Grim Tales from the Garden State, the show where we follow the dark stories and twisted threads that have been woven in the great state of New Jersey. I'm your host, Mrs. B, and today's story is about Cody McPherson, a young father who had recently relocated back to New Jersey in search of work and a fresh start surrounded by family and loved ones. When a vicious love triangle came to a head, Cody vanished without a trace. Complicated romantic relationships are a mainstay in the true crime world. When emotions and jealousy flare to the surface, people can lash out in terrifying ways to get the person to whom they feel entitled. Unfortunately, Cody got involved with a group of people who had much more drama brewing beneath the surface than it initially appeared. This case has a lot of confusing relationships and accounts of what happened, so I'm just warning you all now. But before we get started today, let's hear our terrifying tidbit. According to Peter Morrell, an associate professor of health psychology at the University of Leeds, killing a romantic rival is typically motivated by lust. These killers get a sexual rush or even a thrill out of killing a competitor, knowing that not only do they have their romantic interests all to themselves, but they also feel victorious, as if they've conquered a formidable foe. Interestingly, according to US Department of Justice, love triangles usually motivate women to kill more than men. The abstract of the journal Anger, Aggression, and Violence of Love Triangles reads, Findings show that love triangles are a more important motive when females commit homicide than when males commit homicide. Females usually kill their lovers, while males usually kill their rivals. Male attacks on male rivals reflect identity concerns. What I gain from this is that women typically kill the person who has betrayed them, whereas men kill the person who has made them feel like less of a viable or competent partner. The bulk of our story takes place in Pemberton Township, Burlington County. This town has almost 27,000 residents and 62 square miles, so it is considered sparse suburban. Most people own their homes, which is pretty typical of smaller towns where there aren't many rental properties available. The township has a good school district and is one of eight towns and townships that encompass the Joint Base McGuire-Dix-Lakehurst, or just McGuire, which is a military base, uh, and it's where many members of the military and their families live and work. Pemberton Township is also one of over 50 other municipalities that fall within the New Jersey Pinelands National Reserve, which includes the Pine Barrens. This nature preserve features a wide variety of plants and wildlife, a multitude of forests, such as the Batona Trail, and wetlands. These geographical details are very important to this case. Cody McPherson was born on July 15, 1997 in Mount Holly. He grew up in a big family with five brothers and one sister, and he fell somewhere in the middle of all of them. Although their parents were divorced, the family's fortitude wasn't shaken. The McPhersons were definitely a well-known tribe across Burlington County as they loved hanging out with each other and playing sports, going fishing, and especially playing music together. Cody played bass and would sing songs with his brothers all the time, and he enjoyed performing at theater productions at school. But Cody's mother noted that he was always very independent, but had a solid group of friends surrounding him. The family moved to Portage, Indiana in 2012 when Cody was 15. The last year he was in Indiana, he ended up getting his girlfriend pregnant. He was in love with her and was fully aware of how much both of their lives were going to change. Although his family was surprised that this happened, they trusted that he would do the right thing for his new family. When his daughter was born on September 16th, 2014, she was immediately welcomed and adored by everyone and Cody was determined to make sure she had a good life. By 2015, however, the reality of having a small child had become glaringly apparent to the young couple. Cody found the transition of fatherhood quite difficult as he was now working multiple jobs instead of attending high school or college like a regular teenager. He and his girlfriend were very on again, off again, but eventually they called it quits for good. In 2017, Cody felt it was time to move back to Pemberton Township, New Jersey. His brothers were all still in Jersey, so he had an amazing support system waiting there for him. 
They were all so excited for his return. He moved into his uncle's house, which allowed his brothers to see him every day on his way home from work. They would take this time to play music together, learn songs, and catch up on lost time. Cody's focus was on finding work. Although he was upset to not be around his daughter every day, he felt that Jersey would provide him with better opportunities to provide for her. He went to work in construction with his uncle, which was basically what all the men on the McPherson side of the family did for work. On September 23, 2017, about two months after Cody came back to Jersey, he wanted to hang out with his new girlfriend, Caitlin Huertas, because she was throwing a party. However, Caitlin had a very present ex-boyfriend, and one of Cody's brothers, Daniel, could already smell trouble. Cody reassured his brother that no drama was brewing and that he had no reason to worry. Cody was always the one to de-escalate situations when he sensed tensions rising. He was never the one to incite or encourage violence. Anyway, Caitlin lived only a 15-minute walk from the uncle's house. One of the reasons Cody really liked Caitlin was because they were both young parents. She had two children with her ex-boyfriend, Alan McGinnis, and enjoyed having someone to confide in and vent to whom she knew would understand. She also knew that their conversations were strictly between them. The private information and feelings that she divulged to Cody would not be in the whispers of gossipers around town. Unfortunately, this party was the last time anybody saw Cody alive. Cody's family was leaving voicemail after voicemail, calling nonstop for almost 24 hours straight. They figured maybe he was just in his own head and wasn't in the mood to talk to anyone. It wasn't totally unlike Cody to run away when his emotions got the best of him, but this was a suspiciously long amount of time to be completely unresponsive. Sean, one of Cody's big brothers, filled out a missing persons report for him. His father called his mother, who was still in Indiana, to let her know that their son was missing. Daniel knew that the last place Cody probably went was Caitlin Huerta's house. On September 25th, 2017, when it had officially hit 24 hours of Cody's being missing, the cops headed over to Caitlin's house. They spoke to everyone at the residence, and they confirmed that Cody was there that night. They learned that Caitlin was with Cody, her ex-boyfriend Alan, her mother Kathleen, and her younger sister Brooke. I think there were a couple more people there though to constitute a party like it was reported, but after they had a few drinks, Caitlin was tired and decided to go to bed. When Alan was questioned by the police, he explained that he and Caitlin had two children together, and although he didn't live with her, he was over the Huerta's house regularly because that's where his kids lived. The police concluded that Cody was last seen around 3 a.m. smoking a cigarette on the porch, announcing he was heading for home. Before we introduce another love interest, I will admit that the relationship dynamics in this case are very confusing. Caitlin was dating three men in very quick succession, so I'm not totally sure if the relationships overlapped at all, but she was undoubtedly at the center of a lot of drama. A man named Chris Edelin, one of Cody's friends and his roommate, as well as one of Caitlin's recent exes, threatened to fight Cody. The two men had a falling out because Cody was dating Caitlyn and Chris was jealous. To increase the messiness of the situation, although Caitlyn was dating Cody, she was still talking to Alan and Chris, so all three men were beefing with each other over this girl. I'm not blaming her for the behavior of these grown men, but her indecision was kind of leaving these guys in the lurch because none of them were really sure about how she felt about them. Cody left the party in the early morning hours of Sunday, September 24th, 2017. Caitlin's mother, Kathleen, had security cameras, but they proved to be useless because the footage from that night had been overwritten somehow. Hmm. The police asked to interview Brooke, but Kathleen intervened and denied them because Brooke was a teenager who was visibly shaken by the whole incident. They then turned to searching Cody's cell phone records and get additional confirmation that his last known location was around Caitlin's house in Browns Mills, Pemberton Township. Three days after Cody's disappearance, detectives launched several search parties. The whole town got involved to help find Cody. It was beautiful to see such high town morale and everyone come together for a shared purpose. 
Detectives then interview Chris and another roommate at Cody's home. They had gotten word of Chris's threats against Cody, so they needed to know if he had any involvement in his disappearance. Chris said that he was out his house drinking, left on his bike to retrieve more alcohol from a bar, and then came back home to continue drinking. There were eyewitness accounts of Chris being at the bar, but there were also some swaths of time where no one could say where he was, so the cops still had to consider him a suspect. Chris admitted that he did fight with Cody because he was upset about his relationship with Caitlin, but he claimed they fought at a different house. The authorities were able to recover the surveillance footage from the Huerta's house. Three people that looked like Caitlin, Cody, and Alan were spotted walking towards the house. Caitlin and Alan are brought back to the police department for further interrogations. For Caitlin's interrogation, the police gained consent to go through her cell phone. On October 19th, about three weeks after Cody's disappearance, they found a text that she sent to Brooke, her little sister. Caitlin has said that she was afraid of Chris and she was concerned for her safety because he had been acting erratically. She explicitly said, he killed Cody over me, he will kill me. She immediately backpedaled and said that she had no memory of sending that text and that Chris never said anything like that to her. This was incredibly suspicious and confusing, so it didn't progress the investigation at all. In a marshy area between Caitlin's house and the uncle's house, investigators found a backpack with Caitlin's wallet and driver's license in it, but there wasn't anything of significance in it besides that. Now it's March 19th, 2018, about six months after Cody's disappearance. There is a controlled burn being executed at the Collier's Wildlife Preserve in Jackson Township. For anybody wondering, because I personally was curious, Controlled burns help decrease the chances for wildfires by getting rid of the material that could be used as fuel. According to NC State's Natural Resource News, prescribed burns also encourage the new growth of native vegetation, increase the biodiversity of plant species, and minimize the spread of pests, insects, and disease, and recycle nutrients back into the soil. Anyway, right before the burn was about to reach them, the fire marshal found unclothed skeletal remains about 15 to 20 minutes from the Huerta's home. It looked like somebody had deliberately concealed the body because it was under a considerable amount of brush and vegetation. After analyzing the animal and insect activity with the body, a forensic anthropologist determined that the body had been there for many months. They deduced that the body had been a male in his early 20s, so the police delved into open missing persons cases that were in the area. Detectives are beginning to think that this is Cody McPherson, but obviously they need DNA results before they can make that call. This would prove difficult because the body had been decomposing for a while, so there were a couple of teeth missing. An odontologist couldn't confirm based upon any dental records, and the medical examiner couldn't tell the family anything. What they did discover was that there were tool marks on the bones, and the cause of death was stab wounds, and the manner of death was obviously homicide. A vehicle was found near where the body was found. After running the plates, the cops learned that it belonged to Chris Edelin. They went back through their records and discovered a police report that Chris had filed back around the time of Cody's disappearance. The report said that Caitlin and Alan had taken his car to go off-roading without getting his permission first. The cops' ears perked up upon hearing this because they had suspected that Alan had something to do with Cody's disappearance. This could be the piece of evidence that could put him at the scene of the crime. On April 17th, the medical examiner was able to positively identify the body as being 20-year-old Cody McPherson. This news delivered a massive blow to the McPhersons and Pemberton Township at large. His family felt relieved in a way because at least they had closure for where he was, but they knew they would never get to see him again and his daughter was now without a father. Of course they wanted to know what happened to him and desperately wanted justice, but they also had a hard time grappling with the news and honestly wished it hadn't happened at all. 
Seven months after Cody's disappearance, Alan McGinnis was sent to jail on other unrelated charges. While Alan was chilling in prison, he let the two inmates he was living with know that he hated the fact that Cody was dating Caitlin. He told them that he made Cody disappear. Alan clearly had a very warped soul. The police thought the perpetrator was either Chris because of the heated argument and fight that he and Cody had showed before Cody's death, or Alan because of the comments he made that he was just blindingly angry that Caitlin was dating Cody. Chris had moved out of the state by this point to escape the constant scrutiny that was spurred by the investigation. The cops got search warrants for the house where Chris used to live, Caitlin's house, a family member of Alan's home where he had been living, and the house in Virginia where Chris was currently staying. Alan was brought to the Jackson Township Police Department for an interview, while Caitlin was brought to the Pemberton Township Police Department, and Brooke and Caitlin's older brother were interviewed at the house. Brooke claimed to not know about Cody's disappearance, but then she just burst into tears and admitted that she feared for her and her family's lives. She said it was Alan. The cops freeze in their tracks and pivot their strategy. They urgently have to get everyone's stories right now before they could coordinate timelines and potentially create a fake narrative. Brooke goes on to say that when she was hanging out in the basement of her home, Alan came downstairs and said something to the effect of, I'm going to kill Cody. There are differing accounts to how Brooke reacted to this announcement. The program Home Sweet Homicide stated that Brooke was immediately terrified by this news and she ran to warn Cody about what was about to occur. The affidavit, however, states that she initially thought that Alan was joking and didn't realize he was serious until she witnessed him viciously stabbing Cody in the neck. These are pretty opposite reactions, but I'm inclined to believe whatever was said during court proceedings. Anyway, Cody had been asleep on the couch, but the attack caused him to jump up and shove Alan away from him. Being wounded, Cody struggled to fight back, so Alan was able to stab him again, but in the chest this time. Alan dragged Cody out of the house, where Cody was able to stand for a couple seconds and then fell to the ground. Alan burst back into the house and demanded that someone give him his keys. He proceeded to throw Cody's body in the trunk and drive off into the late night. After Alan left the crime scene, Brooke and Kathleen were cleaning up the blood on the floor and the couch, absolutely terrified that they would be next. Alan lived with his cousin, and he swung by his home around 3am on his way to find a dumping spot. According to prosecutors, he knocked on the window and asked his cousin, Hey, do you have a shovel? I have a body in the trunk. I am unsure if the cousin provided said shovel, but either way, Cody's body was dumped at the Collier's Wildlife Preserve under a pile of leaves and foliage. The police unfortunately did not get very far when they did get to interrogate Alan because he instantly asked for an attorney. They could not confirm his exact motive for the murder because his attorney shut him up before they could get anywhere. Luckily, there was plenty of evidence that made all signs point to Alan McGinnis. In late April of 2018, Alan was charged with murder, unlawful possession of a weapon, possession of a weapon for an unlawful purpose, kidnapping, improper disposal of human remains, and destruction of evidence. The trunk of his car tested positive for Cody's blood. They discovered that Alan intentionally messed with the surveillance cameras at the Huerta's house to destroy any evidence of him dragging Cody's body out to his car. He had circled back around to the Huerta's home, snatched on the cameras, and burned them in the woods. He also burned Cody's clothes and phone. Alan actually said multiple times to different groups of people that he wanted to kill Cody, but especially that night at the party. They confirmed that Chris Edelin and Caitlin Huertas had no involvement in Cody's death. Caitlin had no idea that the homicide occurred. Some sources say that Caitlin was actually sleeping next to Cody when the murder happened, but that she was so intoxicated that she was completely knocked out. Others say she was in another room entirely when it happened. In addition, according to the affidavit, Caitlin broke up with Alan the day before he killed Cody. The Superior Court Judge Guy P. Ryan said that apparently, 
Kaylin had hooked up with Cody at a motel the day she broke up with Alan, and Alan was convinced that she was pregnant with Cody's child. I don't know if he suspected her of cheating beforehand and had gotten pregnant then, or if he thought that she had gotten pregnant from the encounter the night before. He blamed Cody on Caitlyn being an unfit mother to their children, and he said as much to Brooke and Kathleen as they were cleaning up the buckets of blood he left behind. Apparently, Cody was still alive after Alan had stabbed him, but he was left in the forest to die. All of the Huertas family cooperated with the investigation and none of them were charged. It was clear that they genuinely feared for their lives and felt like they had no other choice than to comply. On December 10th, 2018, Alan agreed to take a plea for 30 years without the possibility for parole and pled guilty to one count of murder. This case was wild, and although there were a couple of inconsistencies across the sources, the main facts and major events stayed true. Part of me wonders if Alan texted Brooke about Chris killing Cody. I imagine after having two children together, it's not too far of a stretch to think that Alan had the passcode to Caitlin's phone. Why else would she accuse someone of killing her boyfriend and then immediately deny ever having said it? Also, what was the issue specifically with Cody? Did Chris also receive a level of harassment? I hope after all this, Caitlin has decided to go no contact with Alan and not communicate with him in prison or send him money. I feel sorry for both of Caitlin's children and especially Cody's daughter. The McPhersons were obviously distraught, especially his brother Daniel. He said of Cody, I love you more than you could possibly know. I cherish every memory and will always forever. After his remains were found, Daniel advised everyone, keep your family close everybody. Talk to a family member you haven't talked to in a while and tell them you love them. And I feel like that's a good place to end today's episode. Thank you everyone for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Please don't forget to rate, share, and follow this podcast. I will see you all next week. Goodbye.